Yo, this is a disclaimer. I ain't responsible for anything Eric says. But hey, I agree with him. Hi, Ted. This is Jude's dad, Eric. I'm not trying to uh, put my nose where it doesn't go. I'm not trying to overwhelm. Uh, but I had some thoughts, and I wanted to kind of record them. I guess for context, which is uh, funny, because that's what I want to talk about. But, you know, if at any point you feel like I'm uh, getting a little overwhelming or uh, butting in, just... Uh, send me a smoke signal or a text or whatever tell Jude and I'll be happy to uh, to bow out but I wanted to record some thoughts that I had about um, what I call desert island theology as it relates to Torah following for Christians I guess uh, the way that I just love to think about a man coming to the truth of the scripture is by picturing a guy on a deserted island and there's Besides the coconuts and the, the birds flying overhead and a few palm trees, there's nothing but sand and sun. And this guy is sitting here with nothing to do, nothing to think about. And this guy's unusual. He has no context. Um, he's got no uh, familiarity with the church or church history. He's never heard a sermon in his life. His great-grandfather was not a circuit-riding preacher. Um, he doesn't know anything. And as he's sitting there, this huge glass bottle washes up on the shore. This is one of those um, gallon apple cider jug bottles. Don't ask me how, but somebody got a Bible into this glass jar, and this guy gets the bottle, he breaks it open, he gets the Bible, and now literally he has nothing to do except to crack coconuts and, um, and read the Bible. And so he does. And so the question I have in my mind is, what kind of theology does this guy come up with? And what I love about the, the Bible, one of the things is that the Holy Spirit, as he helps the reader seek the Lord and understand, the message is accessible. Accessible even to a guy on a deserted island, and how much more so to, uh, to you and me with all the resources we have to help us. So this is a wonderful wonder. This is an, an amazing thing. Now, I do have, um, there are lots of friends and, and acquaintances. I'm thinking about one in particular named Pete who just the other day said something about this, that lots of people would say that this man on the deserted island is missing something important. He's missing systemic theology to go along with his desert island theology. That him reading the Bible uh, and understanding it as best he can is not enough. Now there's a huge benefit to systemic theology, probably lots of them, but one of them that stands out to me the biggest is it keeps the horses in the corral. It keeps some uh, loose cannon from, from going off on rogue and starting a cult. Um, the systematic theology is a, a fence or a protection to keep things kind of under control. Uh, I think I hear the dog. Hey, I thought that was Lucy at the door. Nope. I'm recording here. It ain't Lucy. There's Lucy. Uh, anyway, <clears throat> so there's a great help to systematic theology, but as so often happens, the same thing that's a strength can be a weakness. Uh, many of the horses that did escape from the corral of different systematic theologies over time have become heroes of our faith. Uh, they're quote-unquote cults, 
that were started by rogues that have given us new beneficial theologies or have highlighted facets of the, the church and Christianity that were completely neglected, that nobody saw before. This applies to everyone from Martin Luther to the Brethren Movement to the Charismatics, the, the Neo-Charismatics of 120 years ago. So, yes, huge benefit to systematic theology, but uh, the benefit itself, keeping people locked into a system of thought, is a huge drawback as well. Another challenge with systematic theology is it can, it can sate our appetite for seeking for God, as Proverbs talks about digging for him as for gold or for silver. If the answers are given to me, then I'm like, you know what, okay, I can dig slower, or I can dig less, or I don't have to find it for myself because here it is. So, you know, to me, if I had to choose between, which I don't, but if I did, if I had to choose between desert island theology or systematic theology, I would go with desert island theology all the time. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Desert island theology is a fresh set of eyes on scripture, and that benefit outweighs the drawbacks, in my opinion. It's like a man coming to a swimming pool, and he's wearing uh, you know, leggings and, and socks and hiking boots, He's got on um, jeans and some kind of protective warm uh, overalls and a couple shirts and a flannel shirt and he's got a jacket and he's got an overcoat and a stocking cap and, and sunglasses on and he's standing next to a swimming pool and to peel off all that stuff and to, to just step or dive or jump right into that water without all the baggage and the accoutrements of systematic theology gives that person a an experience in the pool that's the way it should be. And the fresh eyes of desert theology are freeing. And not only the great men like Martin Luther um, and Calvin and Zwingli, but even me, even little old me, have the ability to look at Scripture afresh and to wrestle with it uh, without a bunch of stuff hanging on us. For example, the truth about a little passage in Matthew Matthew 28, the Great Commission, for, oh, let's see, nearly 300 years from the time of the Reformation until 1792, this passage was assumed that it was only to the 12 disciples, that they were supposed to be the ones to go into the world and to preach the good news of the kingdom, baptize, etc., this is not for the rest of Christians. There was this belief, popular at the time, that at the end of the age, God would magically convert everyone that he wanted to convert, and the rest would be cast into hell. And so there was no need for all the, all the trouble it would take to go to different places and preach the gospel. But in 1792, this uh, young kid, uh, 29 years old, William Carey, a shoemaker, he's a nobody, um, he, he loves the word, he, he makes shoes, and he, and he starts studying the Bible, he walks around, he preaches from town to town, but he always returns home, he makes shoes. He publishes this controversial essay on missions. It's called An Inquiry. In other words, a question. Hang on, guys, let's question something. Let's question something that's settled. And he says, he says this passage in Matthew was intended for more than the disciples. 
It's intended for all of God's people, even today, and that we are responsible to go anywhere in the world where there is no gospel. And those who don't go are responsible to send those people to anywhere in the world that needs the gospel. And he blew the lid off of the church. It was insane. And he, not single-handedly, but with a few people, people like him and David Brainerd, and you know, they began to reach out. David Brainerd was actually before him, but didn't share the same theological understanding of Matthew 28. But the point is, this brought an awakening of modern missions to the church, something that you and I would find the church completely unrecognizable without. We wouldn't even know what church was today if it wasn't for a Matthew 28 mindset, right? This um, was a truth just waiting to be revealed by the jettisoning, jettisoning of baggage and false teaching built up around the passage. And when it was thrown off, the truth of the passage could be revealed. What kind of baggage um, attaches itself to Matthew 5? Another section of Matthew, obviously. Um, well, the first thing that jumps out is the grievous sin of anti-Semitism. When I say it's a grievous sin, uh, I, I just mean it's, it's like all sin. It's wrong and it's bad and it, it damages the sinner and it puts him guilty in the sight of God needing, needing forgiveness. But this sin started very early in the church and became ingrained in our culture and has been able to last for a long, long time. And that baggage is covering up the eyes of many of us when we read um, lots of parts of the Bible, but especially Matthew chapter 5. Um, starting with Ignatius of Antioch. This guy, he died probably about 110 years after uh, the resurrection of Jesus. And he says in one of his letters, it's disputed. He, there are a lot of scholars that think he didn't actually write this, that it was written 300 years later, but if he did write it, whatever. He says, if we are still practicing what he calls Judaism, we admit that we have not received God's favor. It's wrong to talk about Jesus Christ and yet live like Jewish people. So he is the first church father we know of, 110 years after the resurrection, to start pushing for worship on Sunday instead of Sabbath. Okay, so there's some, you know, that's the long johns. That's the first layer. And... Um, well, I don't know that this is so much anti-Semitism as a theological mistake. If he thinks that it's wrong to talk about Jesus and live like the Jews, um, I think Jude pointed out First John where it says anyone who follows Jesus must walk as he walked, you know, like the Jews. But anyway, um, uh, another church father, Barnabas, about the same time, he said, don't pile up your sins by telling anyone that we share a covenant with Jews. Justin Martyr, around the same time, about 150, he tells Jews in a, in a famous letter, he says, we would observe your Sabbath, we would keep your festivals, except for the fact that they were imposed upon you because of your sins and hardness of heart. Well, that's flat out theologically incorrect. You can go back to the Bible and you find out that God gave the Jews the Sabbath as a sign between him and his people. Uh, they weren't the Sabbath and the festivals were not imposed upon them because of sin. I mean that's just like a real beginner mistake there. Origin of Alexandria around 200 A.D. says the Jews were replaced by the people of God because of their sin of crucifying Christ. Well, great idea, except it's not found in Scripture. Uh, what we find in Scripture is 
that God, with the help of sinful man, put Jesus to death, not that the wicked Jews killed him and therefore they should suffer. Um, John Chrysostom, the golden mouth, he's a very famous anti-Semite. Um, more than theological mistakes, he really seemed to have a personal animus against Jewish ethnicity. He says, um, a synagogue is worse than a brothel. It's devoted to idols and demons. I say the same thing about their souls. He says, I hate the synagogue, and I hate the Jews for this. Uh, St. Augustine in 400, how hateful to me are the enemies of your scripture. I, I pray that you would kill them with the sword out of your mouth so they can't oppose your word. Uh, Peter the Venerable, he says, I truly doubt if a Jew can really be a human. I lead out from its den a monstrous animal, and I show it as a laughing stock to the amphitheater of the world. Did, did anti-Semitism or, and or theological mistakes or misunderstandings about the relationship of the Jews to God and the Jews to the crucifixion of Jesus, did these things influence systematic theology over the next 2,000 years? Of course they did. How could they not? In fact, it doesn't just stop with the church fathers, but it continues on very powerfully with even Calvin and especially um, Martin Luther, who initially wanted to convert all the Jews to Christianity in Germany, and when they didn't respond to his message like he hoped, he changed to a rabid anti-Semite, advocating the confiscation of Jewish homes and businesses and the running of Jews out of Germany. Um, do you think that, you know, the Church Fathers, Catholic writers, Calvin, Luther, do you think that these have an impact on the theologies that have formed around um, the Christian's relationship to Torah today? Of course they do. There's no way to know exactly how much or to what extent, but it's there. Um, but would a man on a desert island get that notion? Would he, reading Genesis through Acts especially, would he, if he were to you know, rescue him, and uh, he's on the boat and he's telling you about his ordeal, and then he starts telling you, I have this book, I've been reading this book. And, well, where are you? Well, I've read up through Acts. Oh, great, well, well what's it about? And he tells you the story of creation and the, the life of the Jewish kingdoms, and then he gets to Jesus, and and so what should we live? How should we live? The the captain of the ship says, and this guy from the desert island, he's totally going to be a Torah follower. There's no reason that he wouldn't. He has no church context, no systematic theology, no anti-Semitism, and no confusion about that the Jews are, are worthy of death for killing Christ. He has none of that as baggage, and so he just sees the message for what it is. Would this man believe that the Jews deserve to suffer because they crucified Christ? No, he would believe that we should love our enemies. He would believe that God put Jesus to death, that Jesus willingly went to death, that the Jews didn't do it to him. They were just the instruments that God used. He would have the attitude that Paul has, that his heart is torn out for his lost people. Now, if the guy read on past acts, he might get confused without context by some of the things Paul says. He might say, well, Paul says we're no, no longer under the curse of the law. Does that mean Paul called it a curse? Or we're no longer under the curse that the law brings? But, but anyway, um, he certainly wouldn't think, oh, well, there's only a moral tour that we should follow, but we can get rid of the rest of this. Desert Island theology is the fastest and best way to shed the drawbacks of systematic theology. Desert Island theology is the best and fastest way to shed the cultural baggage of 2,000 years, much of which, in retrospect, is crazy or just flat-out obviously wrong. 
Desert Island theology is a great leveling force that makes the playing field level between little old me and even someone great like Calvin, a genius who had big blind spots, like I do. So the, of course you've got to be humble along with your, your coconuts and your glass jar. Now, the, the man on the desert island, he may not be missing systemic theology too much, but he is missing something really good, something that he does need so that he understands what Paul means, so that he understands what Jesus says even better. And that is cultural context. In light, instead of giving the, the sheep that we feed at our churches um, a theology, we need to give them more context so that the Holy Spirit can enlighten the meaning of the text to them. So when context is missing, when people don't have it, one of two things usually happens. Number one, there comes an alternate interpretation that the speaker or the teacher is very confident in. I remember one time we were at church and this guy was giving a communion meditation before having the Lord's Supper. And he was talking about Adam and Eve and how God, after they sinned, made what has the wording? It says he made clothing out of out of skins for them. And this guy started saying that before the fall, Adam and Eve were simply beams of light floating there. And that until they sinned, that God didn't clothe them with skin. He didn't realize that the Bible was saying animal skins, presumably from the sacrifice that God made to pay for their sin, right? So... Anyway, he was very confident, but he was just missing uh, the basic facts of the passage, a misunderstanding. So you can either get someone who's really confident and incorrect sometimes. Uh, for example, a couple weeks ago I was listening to one of John MacArthur's question and answer nights where he is approachable from the audience and they ask him anything on a Sunday evening. Some answer he gave to something was so far off the mark, I don't remember what it was, he was just missing a, a little bitty fact about context that would completely change the way of looking at it. It wasn't like an earth-shattering big deal, but it was kind of like, oh, wait, John, no, 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 don't tell her that. That's not, no, no, go back. What about? But he didn't have it. But John is, John does not lack confidence. He is, he is so confident that his theology is correct. He never wavers in that confidence. And that's good, but a little scary, too. Uh, in fact, John is a, um, a kind of a neo-dispensationalist. He doesn't rest in the arms of um, a lot of systematic theology. He, he has built his own theology in his non-denominational church, which he, which he pushes really hard. In that sense, he and I are very similar. Um, but, of course, he's John MacArthur, and I'm just Eric. But anyway... So when context is missing, missing, you can either have a lot of confidence but also be incorrect about something. Or, number two, there can be mysterious confusion. Think about 1 Timothy chapter 2 where Paul's talking to Timothy and he says, Women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, holiness, with self-control. Well, let's look at the first way. This is a confusing scripture, right? So let's look at the first error that can happen without context, and that is confident and incorrect. Uh, so today I looked up this scripture just to see what, I don't, I don't know what people usually say about it. So I looked it up, and I found this Crossway article from a Southern Baptist Theological Seminary preacher. And the article was utter confusion. He, 
I mean, he didn't come across as scattered. He just said, well, we're not really sure. It might mean this. It might mean that. And this guy's so much smarter and better and more productive than I am for the kingdom, but he's simply blind on this issue because he's missing an important little tidbit of cultural context. And it doesn't matter. It's not a salvation issue. It doesn't make him a worse person. But, but this little bit of knowledge would help him uh, go a long way. Or secondly, think about the mysterious confusion that many people have had over this passage over the years, including women who weren't able to bear children. And even though their pastors or their husbands might tell them, it doesn't mean you're going to go to hell. They're questioning themselves. If I can't bear children, am I really saved or do I really have God's favor? Well, both of these errors, either confident incorrectness or mysterious confusion, are both solved by a simple little bit of knowledge. The knowledge is that um, uh, Paul was writing to Timothy to fight against a Gnostic tendency building in that church. And one of the tenets of the Gnostic teaching, you can see he's answering three of them right before this, this passage, but he's answering one of them specifically in this verse. And that is the teaching that the second worst thing that a human can do, to the thing that can block that person from finding the truth, the true light of knowledge, is to be sexual. And then the, the very worst thing that could happen to someone is for a woman to become pregnant and give birth to a child. That ruins your chances. That ruins your chances of being saved. That ruins your chances of getting the knowledge. And Paul is saying, no, 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 just you will be saved. Continue through childbearing. It's fine. Of course you need the other Christian virtues, but there is nothing about childbearing that's going to sabotage your salvation. Anyway, it's that simple. There's nothing mysterious about that passage, and there's no reason to be... Um, incorrect about it. Uh, It's just what it is. But without those little bits, how would we know? So the cultural context that benefits us most with the Bible, obviously, is the first century uh, for the New Testament. And more specifically, first century Judaism, and even more specifically, many times, is first century rabbinic Judaism. Jesus was a Jewish rabbi who lived as a Jewish rabbi. His immediate followers were students of a rabbi that formed the church that I am a member of. And so without understanding their cultural context, it's going to... So some quick examples. In the book of John, we have the word uh, translated Jews over and over again. Uh, it's actually eudaioi in the Greek, which means it means a lot of things. It could mean ethnic Jews, religious Jews, Jews who live in Judea, just people who live in Judea, or the pharisaical leadership in Judea. When Jesus says in chapter 8 to the Jews... You belong to your father, the devil. Which Eudaioi is he speaking to? Well, you can tell if you go back to the first few verses that he's speaking to the Pharisaical leadership in Judea. Why don't English translations interpret the word in context? As a result, you get anti-Semites throughout church history referring over and over again to, quote, the Jews in John that Jesus targets over and over again and even tells them that they are sons of the devil. Uh, Another example of of context, cultural Jewish rabbinical context, that can solve problems. Um, Rabbis were expected to rank all the commands of the Torah. So there are like 613 commands of the Torah, and pretty obviously, or pretty quickly, people figured out that sometimes they can contradict each other. And you're put in a position where I have to choose, do I do this command 
Or do I do this other command, right? And so if people would yoke themselves to a rabbi's teachings, and by the way, that's what Jesus meant when he said, take my yoke upon you, it means my rabbinical teachings. His, his burden was easy. But anyway, then if you would follow your rabbi's teachings, then you would be okay when you came to a contradiction because you would simply choose whichever command they taught was more important than another one. Some rabbis even ranked all 613. Maybe that was a rabbi on a deserted island because it would take so much time. So when Jesus is questioned by one of the scribes, he's testing him. He's seeing, is, can Jesus pass this basic rabbi uh, test? Which command is the most important? Rabbi, rank them for us. And Jesus does pass the test of a first century rabbi, but he does it in a way that no other rabbi did. He says, I'll tell you which command is most important, and then I'll tell you which command is second most important. And just knowing those two will help you follow the other 611 commands in the right order. And he goes on to tell the story of the Good Samaritan. The people who passed by on the road and didn't touch the man they thought was dead or dying, they were not hateful. They were trying to obey the Torah where it says, don't touch a dead body and therefore become unclean. Jesus was trying to say they, they should follow that Torah command, but they should rank loving your neighbor as you love yourself higher, and they should follow that command above the others. So anyway, um, just a little bit of cultural context goes a long way to explaining that story. Well, what about Matthew 5? Okay, so prior to Jesus appearing on the scene, there's this common teaching that when Messiah shows up, he either is or is not going to do away with the Torah. Some speculated that he would replace the Torah with himself. Others say that he would replace the Torah with a new set of teachings. Others said, no, the, the Messiah is not going to replace the Torah. Everything will stay as it is. So when Jesus, in his first major sermon, he has preached, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near, right? But this is his first uh, he also revealed himself in the synagogue at Capernaum when he said this uh, prophecy is fulfilled today in your hearing. But this is his first real in-depth teaching. And the, one of the first things out of his mouth is, I want to clear up any confusion. I am not here to do away with Torah, which is another way of revealing himself as Messiah. Because no one would need to say that if he weren't Messiah trying to clear up that confusion. But he does one better. It's not that he does away with Torah or doesn't do away with Torah. He keeps Torah, but then pushes in deeper into it to the heart of the matter, as we talked about uh, before. Anyway, traditionally, desert island theology has been used by root or radical church movements to try to return the church to its first century beliefs and practices. The only thing better than that is Desert Island Theology returning the church to its first century beliefs and practices with appropriate cultural context for greater understanding. But even if I'm not a root um, movement, if I'm, not a, um, if I'm not a pastor, if I'm a nobody, I must individually, as a man or a woman before God, wrestle with the text of the word. I have to develop a personal systematic theology. Of course, to prevent, you know, rogues and cults, you need to 
protect yourself with eldership, with proper exegesis, with accountability. But I don't want to rest in the arms of a systematic theology. I want to seek out the cultural context that will give real light and meaning to the text and then, you know, go from there. Anyway, I guess that's it. I just wanted to share these thoughts and, um, you know, call me or text me if you want, Ted. I'd love to, to chat about these things. All right, take care.